And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You may not have heard the name Abner Mikva, but he's a living political legend from Illinois to Washington. He was an impactful state legislator in Illinois in the 50s and 60s, a leading progressive member of Congress in the 1970s, and a respected uh, member of the federal bench uh, in the 80s and 90s before he left to be Bill Clinton's White House counsel. Abner Mikva has seen and has led uh, so much history over the last 60 years. Among his protégés, Merrick Garland, who succeeded him as chief judge of the uh, U.S. District Court of Appeals in Washington, is now the president's choice uh, for the Supreme Court. Uh, I sat down with Judge Mikva to talk about his long career and his observations of politics today. Abner Mikva, welcome. Thank you. you uh, you're a living legend here in Illinois and, and, and in, in Washington as well. Uh, you've been a, a legislator, a congressman, a judge, a White House counsel, uh, oft, oft mentioned a potential Supreme Court nominee at one time. Uh, so, uh, but I want to go back to the beginning because I think people don't appreciate sort of the richness of your political roots here uh, in Illinois. You were raised in Milwaukee. Right, right. Um, t- and tell me about that. You, you, Newton Minow, the legendary uh, member of the Kennedy inner circle who is famous at the FCC. Right. Talk about the, the vast wasteland of television. Right. He was one of your childhood friends. We were in high school together. He was a sports editor, and I was the editor-in-chief of the high school newspaper. And uh, we've been friends ever since. Uh, he went and we both uh, clerked together at the Supreme Court. He went who did to, you clerk for? I clerked for Sherman Minton, who had been a senator from Indiana. And if that name doesn't ring a bell with you and most of your audience, uh, understandable. He was a one-term senator. He was elected on Roosevelt's coattails in 1934. He'd been, the reason he was selected as a senator was the only downstate Democrat they had in Indiana. So they put him on the ticket and he won and he always knew he was elected on Roosevelt's coattails. So he was a good liberal New Deal Democrat. When he got on the Supreme Court, where he was appointed by Harry Truman, he was a very, very conservative justice. Is that right? Yes. And uh, and uh, who was Newt uh, Clerk? Newt Clerk for the Chief Justice, Fred Vinson, mm-hmm. who was also a Truman buddy. And, uh, Truman at that time, I think... Played cards with him, right? They played cards together, poker yeah. at the White House. Truman appointed three justices, uh, Burton, Vinson, and Minton. I think he appointed Tom Clark, too. Yes. So that it was really a Truman court, even though he had only one term. Well, he had almost two terms as president. So uh, you came down here to go to the University of Chicago. Right. Did you, did you go undergrad and, and law school? No, I went to undergrad at Wisconsin. Uh-huh. But I met my wife. Uh, she was going to Chicago, and I met her on a blind date. And uh, if I wanted to marry her, I would agree to move to Chicago, uh-huh. which was pretty Seems like easy. a good deal. <laughs> it was a good deal. And, uh, you, you know, I love that story about 1948 <laughs> uh, when you were uh, here as a law student and you went to volunteer at the local ward organization. Right. To tell that. I know you've told it a million times, but tell I it have. again. I have. Well, I'd grown up in Milwaukee where it's a very open party and open procedure. So if you walk by the the party headquarters some night, you can end up state chairman before the night is over. <laughs> but I was told that if you come to Chicago, you should just forget about politics, a closed operation, machine politics. And I accepted that, but it was 1948, and Hadley Stevenson was running for governor, and Paul Douglas was running for the Senate. And they both seemed like really attractive candidates. And uh, one night on the way home from law school, I passed the 8th Ward regular Democratic headquarters, Timothy O'Brien committeeman on the street street front window. And I went in and I said, I'd like to volunteer for Stevenson and Douglas. And the, the quintessential Chicago 
ward committeeman took the cigar out of his mouth and said, who sent you? And I said, nobody sent me. He put the cigar back in and said, we don't want nobody nobody sent. <laughs> and that was my... In- <laughs> that was your, in, in, uh, that was your uh, introduction to it was. Ch- Chicago politics. It was. But a few years later, you, uh, you decided that you would, if you couldn't join them, you would beat them. Well, I didn't think of it that way. I, uh, I've always I learned at that time that if two people other than your wife think you ought to run for public office... You hear the clarion call. <laughs> and we had open seats. The legislature just reapportioned itself. And we had an open district. That was at the time we had cumulative voting, you may yeah, remember. Yeah, so there were three representatives there were three from representatives each district. Three representatives, and, and uh, the parties divided uh, the districts. They would each try to... The majority to party would get two in, the, in practice. Right. And so we went to... Uh, they had to nominate two Democrats because it was a Democratic district, and I ran for one of the seats. And the cumulative voting applied to the primaries as well as to the general election, so I was able to win the seat with about forty percent of the vote. And you went to, but you were not the typical legislator in Springfield, where uh, party control was very strong. You oh were, yeah, I had, I owed them nothing, and. Uh, and they owed me nothing, and so I... What was it like in the Illinois legislature back in the 1950s? Well, in those days, it was great. Because of cumulative voting, there were a lot of people there who were independent of a party organization. I served with Paul Simon, who was elected that way, Tony Scariano, who was elected from the South Suburbs as an independent, a woman named Jean Hurley, who later Man- married... Married Paul Simon. Married Paul Simon. And all of us didn't have anybody to answer to except our conscience and our constituency. And so we had a great time. And the, the votes were always close enough so that our votes counted. And we were known, actually, uh, we were called by the opposition, the Young Turks, but there was a group of us that called ourselves the Kosher Nostra. Yes. Because... Uh, Tony gave us that name. and He was Italian and the rest of you were Jews. Huh? Well, that's what he thought. But because Paul he Simon, thought Simon was Jewish. Yeah, but I told him, I said, Tony, Paul isn't Jewish, he's Lutheran. And Tony said, that's okay, he votes Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and in the... Uh, in the 60s, well, first of all, you had a legendary Speaker of the House, right? Paul Powell, was he mm-hmm. the Speaker when you were there? For part of the time we were there. Yeah. In 1970, when he passed away, I think it was 1970, With they the found shoe boxes in his hotel room in Springfield right. was like $700,000 right. in cash. Right. Were you surprised when you read that story? Only that the amount was so small. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he didn't have enough shoe boxes. <laughs> no, he... He was incredible. He had never finished high school and uh, spoke as a Southern Illinoisian, but he was as smart a legislator. I mean, he could stand up with a bill not having read it the first time and immediately figure out who it helped and who it hurt. And he was an incredibly good but crooked legislator. Uh, Adlai Stevenson once said of him that... uh, he would be one of the great public servants from Illinois if only he didn't think that the shortest distance between two points was a curve. <laughs> <laughs> Did he, uh, uh, what, what, were, what were the things that you fought for back then that, uh, that I know Paul, you, I know civil rights was one of them. Yes. Uh, and, and political reform was another. What were the kinds of things that you were fighting for that you couldn't get done in the legislature at the time? Well, one of them was capital punishment. Uh, Paul and I had put in a bill to abolish capital punishment my first term, and we couldn't even get it out of committee. And uh, two years ago, the Illinois legislature abolished capital punishment in Illinois. And, uh, then 50, governor, 60 years later. Yeah, 60 years later. Another was pension reform, which we still haven't achieved. Uh, Illinois has the worst pension problems in the country. Yes. Well, part of it was that we never funded it. Uh, the legislature always found that the easiest thing to do was kick the can down the road, and meanwhile, put in all kinds of goodies 
for for uh, state employees. For, I'm very pro-union and pro-state employee, but we were outraged at some of the things that the legislature did. Uh, one of the measures that passed while we were there over Paul's and my and Tony op- opposition was a bill that allowed a a state employee to be promoted to a higher job for, I think it was three months, and then they qualified to to uh, retire at that higher salary. Right. And they were so they could, they could work 20 years in one job and, and take three months. Three months Some legislators retire. took advantage of that. You They'd leave the they legislature did. and go and take a state job for three months right. and get a pension at the higher right. level. Because the state legislative pensions at that time were very, very minimal. I, I retired after 10 years service with $156 a month. Yeah. That was my pension. Well, you didn't upgrade like the other no. guys did. and no, no cost of living, no anything. But if you were on the inside, you would get one of those. One of uh, it was it was it was a ch- an achievement enough to win a seat in the legislature as an independent back in the 1950s. But in the 60s, you got really audacious and you ran against the Daily Machine for Congress. Now, talk a little bit about that. What that was like, because that was at the zenith of Mayor Daley's power. And the Chicago Machine in the in the early 1960s, or early to mid, I guess. Yeah, it was mid 1960s. And um, the incumbent in my district was a man by the name of Barrett O'Hara, who was then 83 or 84 years old, and he was the last Spanish American War veteran in the Congress. And uh, he was a good liberal Democrat. He voted to abolish the House Un-American Activities Committee. And I really had no issues with his voting record. He was a little soft about the Vietnam War, but it was just starting up at that point. Not starting up, but it wasn't that big an issue. But other than that, um, we were in pretty much agreement on issues. And I, while I really was running against him because I thought 84 was too old to be in Congress, but uh, that's not something you run and win on, as you know. (laughs) Yes. And so... It really became a personality contest, and uh, I divided many families in Hyde Park, which was the area around the university. Right. I'd have uh, my picture would be in one window, and his picture would be in another window because the husband and wife had split on who they were supporting. <laughs> anyway, I ran against him in '66, and the machine was opposed to me, and he won. Uh, he beat me by several thousand votes in the primary, and when they asked him how he felt, he felt said he felt just like when he'd climbed San Juan Hill. <laughs> anyway, two years later, uh, my, my uh, ambition hadn't de- abated at all, but uh, the district was changing, and he was two years older. And at that point... Mayor Daly, who was very much a pragmatist, as you know, decided that I would probably win anyway. And he thought that O'Behar was too old to be in Congress. So when I went in to see him for my, my uh, visit to tell him I was running, he said, well, good, we're going to stay neutral. And, uh, and they did, which meant that the ward committeemen were free to do what they wanted, and two or three of them supported me. I don't know whether I would have won or not, but as it is, without the, the machine support and the support of some of those that came with me, I ended up beating O'Hara. And One won. of the uh, things that people said about Mayor, uh, I mean, the obvious thing about Mayor Daly was that when you ran under his under his banner, there were certain expectations of responsiveness and, and control. Um, did you ever, and you, you obviously had defied the organization's wishes on a lot of issues in the legislature. <coughs> did he ever come to you and ask you to do things that you didn't want to do? Uh, indirectly, and I would not do them. And uh, I incurred his ire. Uh, one of them was he wanted to build an airport in the lake, and I was opposed to that. He wanted to help U.S. Steel put a new steel mill in the lake, and I opposed that. And um, he wanted to increase sales tax for Chicago, and I voted against that. And um, while I was in the legislature, 
it wasn't enough to try to unseat me. But when I ran for Congress and got elected, uh, any of the issues that uh, there was a, a word on that I didn't go along with, uh, it, uh, it, I always let it to be known that the, the mayor was not happy. I remember one of the issues was they were proposing to uh, get the federal government to take over the Skyway, the Chicago Skyway. And, That's the road from Indiana to right, Chicago. And all the the bonds, the delinquent bonds on the Skyway started rising in value mysteriously. And uh, it didn't take much inquiry to find out that there was a plan afoot and that insiders knew about it. And I objected. And so a bunch of guys were going to get rich on this. You bet. And a lot of other people objected, and we were able to defeat it. And... Uh, I, uh, as far as the mayor was concerned, in 72, when uh, it was time for reapportionment, mysteriously my deceit got divided into three parts. Uh, one was uh, that I lived in was given to Ralph Metcalf, a well-known Olympic star and, and a 90% African-American community. The middle part was... Uh, which uh, was South Shore and went all the way west, was given over to an incumbent Democrat. And the district was about, uh, it was a safe Democratic district, but it was about 80% anti-black because it extended all the way into the west part of the city. And then the third piece, the suburban piece, was given over to a very popular Republican uh, who called me and said, Ab, I'd be happy if you run against me. <laughs> I said, that time I won't be. Anyway, I moved up to Evanston. Yes, you, you were redistricted out by Mayor Daley, who couldn't uh, abide your uh, independence. Uh, and you move up to the North Shore uh, of Chicago, uh, and you challenge uh, the Republicans right. for, for a seat up there. Uh, how do you make that transition? How do you rebuild a base... <laughs> Uh, that's completely different geographically than where you came from. Well, it wasn't easy. But on the other hand, there were parts of it that were going on that people didn't really realize. Uh, as far as the, the uh, affluence of the district, at the time I left the south side of Chicago, we were either the first or second poorest districts in the country. And the 10th district on the North Shore was one of the most affluent districts of the country. So there's no question that those issues on welfare and on the safety net and on so on that were my stock and trade on the south side just uh, didn't fit the North Shore, except that the white flight had already started and was well underway, and an awful lot of South Shore had moved up to Evanston and so Skokie, people from the south side of Chicago. from the south side of Chicago, and uh, I remember it was going on even in my '70 campaign when uh, my volunteers would go out. This was when they were campaigning for my reelection, and they take the precinct sheets, which had the names of the last set of voters on them, and they'd ring a doorbell in South Shore and they'd say, "Mr. Goldberg," and there this big black band say, no, my name's Smith. <laughs> and it was true of all the precinct lists, that the, the Jews and the Irish had left and they were replaced by blacks. Well, in a Democratic general election, that didn't matter. But in the primaries, it mattered a lot because most of the black population were very much beholden to the, to the, the organization. The Democratic machine. Democratic machine. So when I came up north, a lot of my constituents had preceded me. Mm -hmm. But even so, I lost the first election. I won the primary, but I lost the general election in 72. And uh, this was the first Nixon, uh, Nixon re-election year. And I lost uh, by several thousand votes, even though I ran well ahead of, of Nixon. I should, I should back up for a second because we missed, I missed a little bit of history. Uh, which is the the sixty eight Democratic Convention? Oh boy! <laughs> uh, you know, and it seems timely now because we may be headed into a uh, a calamitous uh, Republican convention in Cleveland. Uh, hopefully, not 
as violent as the one that was here in, in 68. But uh, just a word about the, 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 the times that in which that happened and the tenor of those times and how that played into your campaign. Well, it was, very, it was a very painful time to be a Democrat. <clears throat> we had just gone through the assassination of Dr. King, which had upset the city and all the big cities very much, including the South Side. We had riots and fires and all kinds of things. And then Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, McCarthy was supposedly running against Johnson, but a lot of us weren't enthusiastic about McCarthy. This is Gene McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bobby Kennedy gave uh, the younger people in the party a great deal of hope. I was, I don't think I was a delegate in 68, but I had floor access. And so I was spending a lot of time on the floor trying, uh, oh, I have to go back a little bit. As you remember, Kennedy was assassinated. In June, yes. In June, and the convention was in July and August, or August. So, um, we were still pining for Kennedy and not comfortable about who who could possibly win the 68 election. Uh, McGovern was making noises, but he didn't run. And as I said, a lot of us were not comfortable with Gene McCarthy. We liked Hubert Humphrey, but he was uh, determined to be loyal to, to... And you were very much opposed to the war in Vietnam. That had become my single most important issue. By the time 68 rolled around, the, the divisions about the war were tops, front and center on everything in this country. It divided generations, it divided families, it divided parties. And uh, I was, I think I was in 30... I may have been 40. Um, and I was, as far as I was concerned, it was an awful war. We should never have been in it. And I was a champion of the anti-war. And it divided, it, it spilled out into the streets there. Absolutely. And uh, McCarthy, as far as many of us were concerned, it was a phony. Um, Al Lowenstein was then uh, running for his first term as a in congressman. Congress from New York. And, and he was supporting McCarthy, but the rest of us were very un, unenthusiastic. And so, and I remember the big problem with Hubert Humphrey, who was a wonderful man and a great liberal and very much against the war privately, is that he would not Split uh, with Johnson. Split huh? with Johnson. And so all the young people were going around saying, dump the hump. And I was trying to explain to them why dumping the hump would mean that there would be a Supreme Court dominated by Richard Nixon. Yeah, there are parallels all through history yes, of things are. like that. Um, and we, 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 I want to get into contemporary uh, polit politics. You, um, uh, but, but before we do, just... Uh, a little bit more in your congressional tenure, uh, you 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 ultimately won in '74 in the post Watergate right. uh, election, uh, and then you did you lose in '76? No, no, I you lost, lost in '78. No, I lost in '72. And then you never had a losing race after no. that, except that in '75, in the middle of a of a decennial, I mean, of a ten-year term. Uh, Richard J. Daley decided it would be a good idea to reapportion. And he had the, the, the Democrats controlled the legislature, and Dan Walker was the de Democratic governor. And lo and behold, my new district that I just won in 74, which so painfully, he proposed to cut up so that my district would run through my front bedroom and out to DuPage County, which was then very Republican. And I had to fight it in the legislature. Uh, the Republicans were opposed to it. We got enough of the independent Democrats to, to um, oppose it so that we were able to defeat it. One of the, one of the things that was uh, the home, I was a young political reporter in the 70s here in town. And one of the things that impressed me, and I covered some of your races up there uh, in Evanston, uh, one of the things that impressed me and impresses me to this day is the legion of young people who you inspired in your races. I mean, a whole core of organizers who went on to become uh, leaders in their own right uh, over time. Um, 
what what was it about you? What was it about your approach to politics that that inspired these kids? Well, I think one of the things was that I was the underdog, that I was fighting the establishment, and uh, that I was at that time very young. I, I find it a lot of parallels to why some of my grandchildren are ended up voting for Bernie Sanders. Not because he's young, obviously. But it's a problem. What I find ironic is that he's doing all those other things, but he's 74 years old, which mm-hmm. I, I thought was time enough to get out of government altogether, <laughs> let alone run for president. But it's exciting if you're 18 and 19 and 20 and there's somebody that presents themselves as they're going to fight the establishment, they're going to do things a different way, and they encourage you to get involved. We had something called the Mikvah Messenger. Uh, Rahm Emanuel claims that it was his start in politics, was being a Mikvah Messenger. And these were all these high school kids. Uh, I think that, that there may have been some even younger than that, who would deliver by hand a newsletter for me. This was in the term period from 72 Sounds to like 74. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Didn't he have a kitty core there? I think so. Yeah. And it was set up in order to offset the newsletter that incumbent congressmen sent out under the, uh, the frank that they get sent out for free. And we had to publish it ourselves and get it delivered ourselves. And uh, these mikvah messengers became... Um, street volunteers that knocked on doors for me, and some of them were my political uh, supporters up until I left political life. One of them was a young guy named Merrick Garland. Yes, indeed. He was 17 years old when he came into the office and said he wanted to volunteer for me. And it was early in the campaign, and so I was in the office, and uh, I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, I write pretty well. So at age 17, he was uh, made our press secretary, sending out the campaign uh, press releases and other things that had to be written. So you got to know him pretty well. I did. And, and what were your impressions of him as a 17-year-old kid? Fabulous. He just was so, first of all, everybody loved him. My wife had picked, decided to pick him out as a son-in-law for any three of our daughters. <laughs> they all hated him before they even met him because <laughs> mom had picked him out. Everybody in the cam- campaign office loved him. And while clearly he had strong passions and strong views, he was so polite about them. There were never any elbows, never any sharp words. I don't think, I've never seen Merrick angry, and I've known him since... 45, 46 years now. Well, given the fight they're having over his confirmation, not getting angry may be a, a real virtue for the next uh, year because they'll have plenty so. of provocation. I hope so. And and I'm amazed that everybody you know, that, I, that has ever worked with him on either side of the aisle, whether he was in justice or in, uh, as a judge, everybody says he is the nicest person. You left... You left Congress in 1978. You got appointed to the federal, right. by the federal bench by Jimmy Carter. Right. Um, and and you served on the same court that Judge Garland is now a chief of. He was my successor. Yes. Uh, so you have a sense of him not just as a uh, not just as a young protege, but you've observed him as a as a judge. Uh, what, what are your observations of him as a judge? He was an incredibly good judge. But in addition to being a good judge, he was an effective judge. Um, you know, I was always grateful that uh, Justice Scalia did not have the inclination or the personality to charm people after he got on the Supreme Court. He was a very charming person. You served with him, right? I served with him for many years. He was very charming. And I remember when we would get get to issues of dispute and we'd talk about it, and then he'd yield some, and he'd say, oh, good enough for government work, and he'd go along. (laughs) When he got to the Supreme Court, on the other hand, he decided that he was going to be the Educator justice, and he was going to educate the country and his court, his colleagues on the court, and the world about what 
what the world should look like, according to uh, Antonin Scalia. As a result, he would say really nasty and, and steaming things about his colleagues. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, who really was very close to him philosophically, just got outraged one time when he wrote something in an opinion about how nobody in their right mind could have come out the way she did. Anyway, Merrick is just the opposite. Whatever his passion... Why, why does that matter, Ab? Why, why does that... Well, to my mind, it matters because he can influence people on the court. And he can influence... You're talking about Merrick because... Merrick. Merrick Garland because of his, his, uh, his ability to work with people. And, and to be low-key in explaining why he comes out a certain way. One of the big constituencies of a judge, of a, a federal judge, an appellate judge, are the law schools and the law students. Uh, they, you know, most uh, individual opinions, most people don't read and most people wouldn't understand if they did read them. But the law schools, the law professors and the law students read those opinions, part of how they learn the law. And if you want to persuade them that something is a good doctrine, it has to be a persuasive opinion to them. Uh, if I can give an example, my kids always get very angry when I give this. I have believed in a free choice for a woman since I was back in the legislature. I used to put in bills to legitimize. On abortion, right. On abortion. And Blackman, the, the case of Roe versus Wade, which came out in the 70s, was in many senses ahead of its time. But in any event, the reason it has continued to cause such a, a, a legal controversy is that Blackman wrote what was a very unpersuasive opinion. He, he mathematicized, if that's a word, the, the process. It is now. That's part of being a, a, a distinguished retired judge. You can create words. <laughs> anyway... As a result, he came out with this decision which said, you know, the first term you can do this, the second term you can do that. And it, it made no legal sense as a doctrine. There's nothing magical about the first term as against the third term. And the reasons why a woman has or needs an abortion or wants an abortion, there is no single unique principle that decides what, what that that arena should be. You know, it's interesting you say that because do you think that advances in medical science now and the early viability of fetuses creates a, 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 an intellectual quandary because of Absolutely. the way Roe was written? Absolutely. And the result is that Roe versus Wade is there are perhaps three important decisions of uh, the 20th century that the Supreme Court has made that have dramatically changed the way we live. One was Brown versus Board of Education. Now, that has not been successful, but at least we have made progress under it. Conditions for integrating the races are a little better than they were before Brown versus Board. Well, schools have really become resegregated because of housing penalty. Yeah, but not because of any legal doctrine. Right. And hopefully we'll find the answer to this housing segregation. The second one is is uh, apportionment. Uh, map? No, yeah, reapportionment. Yeah. The reapportionment was uh, uh, something versus Tennessee. I can't oh, remember I see. the name of the case. But uh, Justice, Black, uh, Justice Brennan's opinion saying one person, one vote has dramatically changed the political landscape. Uh, and people have accepted it. The third one Reaffirmed is... Reaffirmed by the, by the entire Supreme Court just recently. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, unanimously, I mm -hmm. might point out. And the third one has been Roe versus Wade. And frankly, the political dissension about that is worse now than it was in the 60s and 70s when I was working in the political arena. And I think that the reason is that Blackman never persuaded anybody of the legal doctrine that underlay Roe versus Wade. Um, one of my friends at the law school says that the Roe versus Wade did for the Republicans what Bush versus Gore did for the Democrats. It just organized us on a 
you know, on a partisan basis. And Roe versus Wade organized the Republicans on a partisan basis. George H.W. Bush was a colleague of mine the first term in that I was in Congress. And he co-sponsored a bill with me that uh, um, uh, would have legitimized abortion. Obviously, you, you raise these because you feel like that Merrick Garland would be a different kind of justice in terms of the clarity that he would bring to decision-making. Yes. And um, now you're watching this spectacle. Uh, you, uh, I sat next to you the other day when the president came and spoke at the University of Chicago Law School about the fight uh, over the Supreme Court. And as he pointed out, there, there's not a whole lot of dissension about Garland himself, who's very well liked across the aisle, uh, on both sides of the aisle. But there is this issue of whether there should be a seating of any justice at all. Uh, what, what say you about that? Well, I thought the president laid it out very clearly at the University of Chicago. A president is elected for four years. It doesn't say three years. It doesn't say uh, three and a half years. It says four years. And very clearly the Constitution says the president shall, not may or perhaps, the president shall fill any vacancies and appoint members of the Supreme Court. And the Senate is supposed to advise and consent, or not consent. But there's nothing uh, uh, precatory about it. It is a mandatory obligation. And as I say, the president is elected for four years. And the input that the Republicans are talking about, that the people should have a say in who the Supreme Court is, they had that say in 2012 when they elected Barack Obama president. And they have that, say, every four years. But between those four-year periods, it's the president who shall nominate and uh, recommend. Let me, let me ask you uh, this. You've been a witness to um, these confirmation fights now over the period of decades. You, you observed. You were on the bench when the Bork uh, fight yes. happened. Uh, you uh, were on the bench when... Uh, 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 subsequent Supreme Court battles happened. You know, uh, you saw um, uh, it, w it was even Scalia was was un uh, virtually unanimously it unanimously was. It was. Uh, confirmed, and that that was true for. But little by little, uh, these have become much more partisan fights. Um, what was your confirmation vote, by the way? Well, mine was very controversial. I was one of the first controversies uh, involving a, a court of appeals judge. The two groups who were on my tail were the National Rifle Association right. and the Right to Life crowd. Henry Hyde, bless his Hyde, who was the <laughs> congressman that uh, led the Right to Life forces in the From Congress, Illinois. From Illinois. Was an old friend of mine from legislative days. And he took on my defense with the Right to Life people, and he got them off my back by saying he's much more dangerous as a member of Congress than he'll <laughs> be as an intermediate judge court. But the National Rifle Association just was, was vehement. They were determined to, not even so much to block me, but to teach all my colleagues in the Congress that if you oppose the NRA, you better not try to go anywhere else. We'll fight you. You were, and you were, in fact, their biggest nemesis in Congress. I, I remember, I remember you saying back in the '70s. This shows how long ago you were fighting the NRA. That they were the fastest mimeograph machine in the West. They were, they were, and I would put in bills, and I wouldn't even be able to get them out of committee. And even when I got to the Congress in '69, I would put in bills to, and I was mainly concerned at that time the assault rifles hadn't yet come into uh, uh, in, to life, but the handguns were my opposition. And I kept trying to say, but a hunter doesn't go hunting with a handgun. Um, but they were adamant, and when my name came up for a judgeship, they made, uh, well, I remember I was nominated by President Carter in March or April of 79, and all my friends in the Senate, I was a member of the House at the time, were teasing me that maybe they'd vote against me just to build up some 
some uh, conservative credentials, and we'd laugh, and you know, I thought it would be a piece of cake. I was a member of the fraternity. Uh, I, I thought I had reasonably good credentials, and there hadn't been that much of a fight about uh, appellate court judges before then. And lo and behold, uh, in about April or May, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy called me. He was then chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He said, Ab, I think we're going to postpone your nomination till the fall. I said, okay, but why? He said, well, there's a little bit of, of uh, rankling from the NRA. Let's let it cool down a little. Well, that was a bad political mistake because they took that time to raise a hunk of money. Um, they admitted that they spent over a million dollars to... Which is a lot back then. And then back in 79, it was a Lunch lot Lunch money. money now, but a lot back then. My wife said, you know, if they were going to spend that kind of money, they could have talked settlement. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I finally, and I remember getting a call. I was, it was in August. Uh, I was in, out in the dunes for my recess. This is, the House was not in session, but the Senate was. And the senator from Mississippi, Tad Cochran, was a Republican member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, an old, old friend who used to play paddle ball. Yeah, still there. The house. Mm -hmm. So he called me long distance. He said, Ab, I don't know what you're being told, but right now the voting committee is eight to seven, and I am the eighth vote. And if you think I'm comfortable being the only Republican voting for a liberal anti-gun judge, you're crazy. Get your ass back here <laughs> and start finding out what's going on. So I came back. It turned out that in addition to the NRA, uh, uh, Senator... Uh, I'd love to have a senior moment about his name because I never liked him. <laughs> Tom Thurmond was uh, leading his own quiet campaign against me because he had a secret file indicating that I had been a communist while I was at the University of Chicago, which was not true, but uh, that was his oppo opposition. Anyway, Ted Kennedy started to work his magic, and I finally did get out of committee with a two or three vote margin, and I won the House vote 58 to 31. Uh, the Senate vote. The, the Senate, Senate floor vote. Blow. But, uh, but the point is, these have become much more partisan. Oh, much more. But this is something new, this, this, uh, this notion of not taking up a nomination. What are the implications, do you think, of that? Well, the implications are that if you ever divide government which happens quite frequently where the presidency is in one party and the Senate is in another party, you will have no court. It will be, it'll be impossible to appoint anybody. I wish I could say this has never happened before, but it had happened. There used to be something called the LBJ letter, which Johnson would send out in the last six months of, uh, of uh, uh, Eisenhower's term saying, don't send up any appointments because we won't consider them. And that was considered a, strictly a political device, and it, didn't, it only happened once, and I don't think it really affected anybody. And usually they, the president would find some way of breaking that logjam, uh, uh, either by winning over a few senators. Steve Breyer was appointed in the last few months of the Carter regime as an appellate court judge. Now on the Supreme Court. Now on the Supreme Court. And the reason he was appointed is that when he came in for his confirmation hearing, he had Ted Kennedy on one arm and Strom Thurmond on the other arm. Well, with that kind of bipartisanship, you could, you could get through even in those, those uh, sometimes days. But you don't see that today. I don't anymore. And if, Merrick, I, if anybody would get that, there would be Merrick Garland. Absolutely, right? because... Uh, there is nobody who comes across as more bipartisan and is more bipartisan. It's not that he's a part Democrat and part Republican, but that he doesn't see politics as as the way of moving things forward. That's not what he does. Mm -hmm. So, what is your what are your hopes here? I mean, not, forget about your hopes. You're a you're a flinty eyed old politician. <laughs> what do you think the chances here are? Fifty fifty. Mm -hmm. I think that. It, First Even of, though McConnell says absolutely well, not. McConnell says a lot of things. Um, the pressure is going to mount. Uh, I think the president's on the right track. 
of going around the country making speeches about how this is an important piece of government, of fundamental government doctrine uh, that the president should appoint and that his term shouldn't be limited or, or his term shouldn't be limited or his power to appoint should not be negated because of the different uh, party label. And I think that in any event, after the election in November, assuming a Democrat wins, whether it's Hillary or Bernie Sanders, the Republicans are going to look at what their options are in a lame duck session. No matter what Sanders or Clinton say at that time, they have to be concerned that an appointment by either of them if nothing else, we'll just be younger. Yeah, Merrick Garland, 63. 63. And if I were a president appointing uh, with a free hand, with a, uh, a Democratic Senate coming along, one of the issues I would take into account very seriously was age, mm -hmm. because the younger they are, the longer they serve. And that's been the pattern of recent appointments. Absolutely. Uh, Elena Kagan was in her 40s. Mm -hmm. um, in the, just a f the few minutes uh, we have left, I, I want to. You were you left the bench to become uh, White House counsel under President Clinton. Yes. You know both Clintons very well. Yes. Uh, what 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 is your impression of? Uh, well, both of them really. What was it like working with Bill Clinton? And what's your impression of Hillary Clinton? Well, I liked working with Bill Clinton. It was a fun job. I was a little too old for it. I was 69 at the time, and compared to what some people are doing at that age, it seems young, but I, <laughs> I went home every night and toddled to bed because I was so worn out. Um, and I had a good, a good uh, time with Bill Clinton as my, my boss. I have to remind you, though, that I left two months before Monica Lewinsky was hired. Mm -hmm. With great prescience. <laughs> yeah. Now you've had a long relationship with President Obama. He yes. he counts you as one of his mentors. When did you first meet him? I well, I well first I heard of him was when I would tried to hire him as a clerk. He was president of Harvard Law Review, and I was always looking for for uh, bright people that would give me some diversity among my clerks. And uh, I had a Harvard clerk at the time, and I said, tell uh, Mr. Obama I'd like to interview him. I got back the word that he didn't want to be a clerk. He was going back to Chicago and run for office, which I thought was pretty, uh, pretty obtuse of him. <laughs> but I met him a couple months later while I was a student, and I was teasing him about it. And he said, no, I would have applied to clerk for you, but I'm going back to Chicago and run for public office. And again, I thought that, not that he didn't want to clerk for me, but the fact that he was going to go back to Chicago, and as far as I knew, he had no roots there, and just plant his flag, that's not the way you get elected. Well, it turned out that I found out later that, one, he did have roots here, some, but more than that, he got elected the first time he ran. Yeah. And so from then, your old from your old stopping my grounds, old man. stopping ground, and then when when um, while he was still in the state senate, I left Washington, came back to Chicago, and I was teaching at the same time he was, and envied mightily his uh, the students grade their professors at the end of the year, and Barack always had nines and tens on, <laughs> on his grades for the students, and he was just a wonderful colleague, and we would have lunch and breakfast, and he, he could tell me about what was going on in Springfield compared to what it was like when I was there. Uh, there's a permanent floating poker game down there, which I was in when I was there, and he was in when he was there. So Hyde Park was always represented in this poker game. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> when like, history looks back at Barack Obama, because we're getting to the end of the term, what do you think that uh, the record will be? Well, first of all, he brought incredible restraint to the office, primarily in foreign affairs. We had gone through several terms. He uh, designate the president any way you want, as hawks or as 
uh, cowboys or whatever. We just were, we were played a very aggressive role in world affairs in ways that we couldn't carry out, the Iraq War being a perfect example. But there were other things that we were doing, trying to make the world look like we wanted it to look. And the result was we killed a lot of people, including a lot of our own boys, but a lot of other people, and we used up a great deal of our restraint, of our uh, fiscal resources during those periods. You could start, I would start it with Reagan. Uh, the invasion of Granada was just such a ridiculous thing to do. Our determination that Guatemala should look the way we wanted it to look. And so one of the things I give credit to President Obama for is that he, he has exercised incredible restraint on our foreign ventures. And it has not been easy, as you know better than anybody, right. Dave. There's all this pressure. Somebody done something wrong, send in the troops. And when I look at what, you know, and sometimes not sending in the troops didn't result in a happy ending but a less unhappy ending than if we had. Syria is a perfect example with the chemical weapons. Yeah. We got rid of the chemical weapons. Now, is Syria now a wonderful democracy? No. But it's a lot less, less worse off, and the rest of that world is less worse off than if we had gone marching in. So you think that will be a, a major achievement? It will be one of them. Healthcare, obviously, will be another. And the civility of him as president... It's just something that we will look back on. We already are beginning well, to This has been a very civil campaign. So let me just uh, ask you about Hillary, because you worked with her as well, I'm sure, when you were there. I did. And, and what were your impressions of her? Well, we didn't get on too well. I had uh, Ken Starr had been a colleague of mine, and I thought we would get on. Uh, she was fiercely opposed to special prosecutors of any kind. But when he was appointed about the same time that I was, and the press asked me about what I thought would happen, I said, well, Ken Starr is a fine person, and I'm sure we'll get on. We have nothing to hide in the White House. He was a colleague of yours on the appeal. Yeah, on the Court of Appeals. So from there on in, any time his name came up in the White House, Hillary would say, your friend Ken Starr. <laughs> <laughs> and even as late as when she ran for the Senate, she came in for a fundraiser here, and I was going through the line, and I got to say hello, she hugged me and whispered in my ear, what do you think your friend Ken Starr now? <laughs> so we were not always on the best of terms, but she has grown so in the many years since she was first lady. She's learned how to be a good politician. Uh, most of the things she's trying to defend or explain away are really trivial, like the emails. Benghazi. Do you think it, do you think that was trivial? Of course. It was a mistaken judgment. But I can see myself making it, I can see Barack making it, I can see anybody making it. Uh, Benghazi, you know, I, by the end of it I was uh, belittling it by saying, yeah, Benghazi used to play an extreme right field for the Republicans. I, what it was Benghazi? Does anybody really think that she sacrificed one of her Good friends well, who was the ambassador yeah. on purpose? That's nonsense. Um, what kind of president do you think she I should make a great president. When I hear you tell your stories, you have such a, uh, there's such, such a sense of joy about your public service and your long career in politics and on the bench, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of joy in politics today, certainly in Washington, but we've also seen it in Springfield and elsewhere. Ab, how's politics changed? Politics was fun. There were disagreements, and there were bad guys and good guys, but everybody enjoyed themselves while they were doing things. Uh, and they, they talk about Tip O'Neill and Bob Michael going, you know, arguing with each other on the floor of the House. Tip is the speaker, and Bob Michael is the minority leader. And then afterwards going off and having a drink in the Republican Club or the Democratic Club. Well, and your colleague Dan Rostenkowski used Dan to drive Rost home with Bob yeah. Michael. And Danny, who... You know, disagreed with me on every cause that still allowed us both to be in the Democratic Party. But we were good friends, personally, and, you know, we got along with each other. And he knew that, that his, his boss didn't like me, 
But His that, boss being Mayor Daly. Being Mayor Daly. But that didn't keep him and me from getting along together. And whenever anybody asked me, how did you stand it? I, I stood it. I enjoyed it. It was fun. And the fights were fun and the good times were fun. And I just don't sense any of that feeling about their jobs of the present congressmen or the present uh, judges. Uh, there's just so much angriness and, and tension and where the disagreements become personal. Henry Hyde literally was a very good friend of mine. We didn't agree on beans, on important issues. Phil Crane, you may remember that I name. do indeed. Very conservative. Very conservative. Illinois. But I remember that... He that ran for president in 1980 because Ronald Reagan wasn't was too conservative liberal, enough right. for him. And, and Phil Crane had a problem of drinking at night. He did never let it interfere with his daytime work. But after 6 o'clock, if he wasn't involved in something, he would start drinking. And I remember there were times that I and uh, one or two of the other members of the house who lived near him would follow him home. He wouldn't let anybody drive him home would follow him home to try to slow him down to keep him from speeding and getting arrested. There's none of that going on anymore. Yeah, yeah. Is it possible to get it back? Boy, I hope so. And I don't know what it will take. I, you know, one of the things that I thought that President Obama would bring to the, to the country, and I think he has earnestly tried, but I thought he would bring that civility, that respect for somebody else. I remember one time when he was doing a, a press conference and he said really nice things about Paul Ryan. And I thought, boy, that's the kind of thing that a president should say about a, a, an opposition Republican. But it didn't reflect itself back in the way Paul Ryan has talked about the president, and it certainly hasn't spread. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I think, you know, having been there in 2008, that we had some hope and expectations that could change, but the irony, Ab, was that we uh, we swept in these large Democratic majorities. I think the Republicans made a uh, strategic decision that better to let Obama wrestle with these big problems that we had because they'd have a better chance of getting the seats back. Plus, you didn't have in your day cable television, no. uh, social media. No. You didn't have the constant... Uh, barrage of ads that the uh, that the uh, these super PACs can now leverage and without restraint because the Supreme Court has made it so much easier to spend money. Yeah, All I, those things I, add to I, the bad I environment. Agree. But it starts with the proposition that most people who run for office think they have to run against the government. The mess in Washington, the mess in Springfield. Well, of course they're messy. They're, they're democracy. But to go there telling people how much you're going to hate being there. I mean, um, uh, Rubio was this perfect example. He kept describing how terrible the job was. I mean, I think somebody being a senator of the United States has to be one of the great honors and exciting places to be in the world. And mm -hmm. he was demeaning it like it was a... Well, give him, credit for, uh, give him credit for uh, honesty because he's now he's leaving. That's right. <laughs> so uh, at least he's followed through on his I discontent. Know. Ted Cruz is going to be there for a couple more years in spite of all the terrible things he said about it. But it, more than that, I can't believe that Ted Cruz is having any fun there. How would, I can't imagine wanting to serve in a body where everybody else, whether they're of my party or the other party, think I'm a jerk and that I... Well, he has the ultimate satisfaction now because they may think he's a jerk, but a bunch of them are supporting him for president of yes, the United States. <laughs> so, uh, anyway... But I hope it gets better because without it, we're not going to improve the civility in government that we absolutely have to have. Do you think there's anything to uh, the, the notion that um, the World War II generation had... Uh, more mutual regard because everybody had fought together on the same side. I think that may be a part of it. But then on the other hand, that's been 70 years ago. Right. And we should have had other things. That's true. The Vietnam War didn't bring anybody together. Well, I take that back. It brought the Vietnamese together, and they're <laughs> fairly successful. 
but it certainly didn't bring any American troops together. Uh, there isn't the kind of camaraderie that there was in World War II. It was, as Studs Terkel once said, uh, World War II is the last good war. And I hope we don't have to wait for another good war to get our own act together, but we have to do something. I think a part of it is for somebody to pick up what Barack Obama was trying to do, but somehow make it work better, and that is really get people to talk to each other and talk out their differences. Okay, let's leave it there. I think that's a great, that's a great place to stop. Abner Mikva, always great uh, to be with you, and thank you for 60 years of service. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.